But with that, let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you for um, this great reminder of your, your work uh, throughout the world. Um, I am thankful for my brother Mofti and pray you continue to sustain him and his wife and family and the, the missionaries there. God, I thank you for um, this, uh, this word from 1 John chapter 3. I pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear these words, um, give us uh, minds to understand, and give us hearts to receive uh, what it is that you have to show us this morning um, from it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So just in case you're new with us or you just need a reminder, um, we walk through books of the Bible together. We don't do a lot of topical series here, um, and we usually do that by taking, um, taking a book of the Bible and then walking through it verse by verse, meaning we just we break up, 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 this, up the books, um, and we do that so that we're able to cover it appropriately. So I'm not going to preach through the entirety of 1 John in one sitting. Uh, I would hate that. You would hate that even more um, because it would be very, very long, um, and we would probably miss a lot of the things. So we, we break it up so that we can better understand what it is that God is trying to show us through his word. Um, but... <clears throat> That is not how the original hearers uh, received it. So speaking specifically about these books that we've been walking through, which were called the Catholic epistles or the Catholic letters, which means it's written to the entirety of the church, not one specific church um, was, it, was it focused on. Or if you think about Paul's letters as well, um, the original readers would have received them as letters, a letter, like a letter that you would receive in the mail, and they would have sat down and they would have either read them aloud um, to, to, a, to a group of people like this um, over and over again. Um, and I'm sure some of them probably went back through the letters and uh, copied down or highlighted different things um, that stuck out to them. And, and a, lot of, a lot of these people rewrote the letters so that they would have copies of it um, so that they could refer back to. Um, but by and large, they, they read through these letters. So I say all that to say, just as a reminder, because the verses we looked at last week are connected to what we are looking at this week. They are not separate entries in a diary. Um, they're not separate thoughts that John had, and he's just kind of writing them down at, at random. They have a flow to them because it's a letter. And so, so, the, so John's process, uh, thinking process, flows from chapter 2 into chapter 3, and that's what we'll be looking at this morning. So, so two ways that we'll look at the text today so that we're able to see what, what transformative love looks like we're looking at it from um, learning about uh, the love of the Father, so the love that the Father has for his children, and then second, we're looking at the life of his children. So the love of the Father and the life of his children. So first, let's learn about the love of the Father in verses 1 through 3. Let me Look there with me again. I'll read them again for us. John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But what we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So, John here 
is, is being prompted by the rebirth that he talks about in chapter 2, verse 29. And so he begins this chapter, this section, in chapter 3, verse 1, by saying these words. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. So he, he's looking back at verse 29, or, or, or coming out of verse, verse 29, that says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, or has been born again. And then he jumps into this relationship that we have with God as our heavenly Father. So it's good to know that the love that we possess doesn't come out of nowhere. So, so whether you're a, a, a Christian or not, the love that you have, say, for your, your parents or your friends or your spouse or your kids is a love that has its origins in God himself. So 1 John 4, uh, verse 7 tells us this. He says, love is from God. And then 1 John 4 also tells us, God is love. So that's not saying God is loving, even though God is loving. What it's actually saying is God embodies love. Love is who God is. And we'll talk uh, more about that in depth when we get to chapter 4. But for the Christian, it's especially poignant because in verse 1, John says it's a love that has been given to us by the Father. He has given it to us. An even better translation, as I'm sure some of y'all say, is that the Father's love has been lavished on us. It's not just kind of sprinkled here and there. It is lavished. We are immersed in the love of the, of, of the Father. And even more, if you were to, uh, to dig, in this, in, dig into this, this verse more, the Greek term used here literally means of what country? Of what country? So this verse could read, of what country does the Father's love come from? Because John is trying to get his mind and his readers' minds around how incredible it is that God shows his love to us. That he can only describe it as something otherworldly. This kind of love doesn't exist in this in this country. This, this kind of love doesn't exist in this world. It is an otherworldly love that is only that only comes from God. And he's trying to communicate that God's love is, is so astonishing, that it's so unusual, so unearthly, so unique to our human experience that we barely understand its result, which is we are called children of God. Look at verses 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but what we know, uh, but what we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So to better understand this love that God has given us, I want, I want to dissect two things. First, what it means that God is Father, 
And second, what it means to be a child of God. So as God is Father. So at, at, its, at its healthiest relationally, I could not think of a more secure position for a child than to have a father who calls you his child. Now, this is nothing against moms here at all. Moms are important. You are needed. But statistically speaking, in our country at least, in in the United States, to not have a father in the home is devastating to a family. From the National Center for Fathering. More than 20 million children live in a home without the physical presence of a father. Millions more have dads who are physically present but emotionally absent. If it were classified as a disease, fatherlessness would be an epidemic worthy of attention as a national emergency. So here are some of the results of this without having a father present, either physically or emotionally a much higher chance of living in poverty, uh, a higher chance of drug and alcohol abuse, a higher chance of physical and emotional problems. For instance, children of single-parent homes are more than twice as likely to commit suicide, lower educational achievement, higher chance of committing crimes, and higher sexual activity and teen pregnancy. So if having an earthly father is this important. So much so that when, that when that father is absent from the family, it causes this much devastation, how much more important is it to have a heavenly father? And I believe that God as our father is something Christians tend to take for granted. Uh, we sing about it, we talk about it, we read about it. Um, and, and in turn, when we do take it for granted, we fail to realize just how important it is for our understanding of God to recognize him and to know him as father. And I think the reason for this is a lot of us didn't have a great earthly father example. And so, and so your view of a, of a father, even, even a heavenly father, is a bit skewed. Pastor Ray Ortland. In a great little article on fathering that you can find online, he writes concerning the impacts the impact fathers have. He, he says this, quote, The Bible says that, that fatherhood shapes personal identity and self-awareness for both good and ill. Fatherhood can pass down a rich spiritual inheritance, binding our hearts to God, and fatherhood can also pass down a history of failure that we must not deny. Fatherhood is also how training, nurture, and wise correction influence the rising generation. And some of this is is emblematic of God as our Heavenly Father. And I say some of this because God as our Father never fails us. His his shaping of us is is always good if, 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 if it's sometimes painful. It's still good. And the spiritual inheritance that we are to receive is on par with Jesus' own inheritance with the Father. The Bible says that we are co-heirs with Jesus. So Jesus, during his earthly life, uh, life, is actually the one that shines the spotlight on God as Father. Not only saying, God is my Father, which, which is what got him in a lot of trouble amongst the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and such, 
but he's also communicating to us that God is our Father. And so he reshapes the idea of fatherhood for us. From uh, Ray Ortland's article again, he says this, It is Jesus who calls God Abba Father. It is Jesus who teaches us to pray to God as our Father, like we did earlier today in the service. It is the Spirit of the Son who leads us into intimacy with God as our own Abba Father. Now we know that as our Father, God cares for us and provides for us. As our Father, He hears and answers our prayers. As our Father, He disciplines us. As our Father, He receives us and forgives us and rejoices over us when in repentance we come home to Him. That God, the Father, has made Himself God, our Father, means that He is personally, emotionally, and even sacrificially involved with us. Great timing on that noise. And God the Father is, is the principle of the Godhead. He is, he is the one who plans the work of salvation and who sends his Son to carry out that work of salvation. And it's the Son who pleads for us in the presence of the Father, and the Father forgives us because of this intercession by the Son on our behalf. He is our Father, and we as Christians are his children, which is the second thing I want to dissect for us. To be called a child of God, as one commentator said, is an immense privilege because it means that God himself has chosen you to be in his family. And the implications of this are massive. To be a child of God means that in the Son, Jesus, we have become heirs of the Father, Father's kingdom. So Paul tells us about this in Romans chapter 8. He writes, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Spirit is confirming for us that we are children of God. And if children, if we are children of God, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And John, in his gospel, chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, describes what it means to be a child of God. He says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this new birth that John mentioned, this is the new birth that John is talking about in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 29. The children of God are born of God. And this is a secure position. As one commentator said, it is an act of legitimation in which a father names his child and therefore makes a permanent claim to identity and ownership. Hence, it is not in the child's hands. My children were not able to make themselves be born. They did not name themselves. They did not claim any rights. It was not in their hands. It was all in my hands and Tara's. Mostly in Tara's. So just to be clear, because I know this, this term child of God gets kind of tossed around in churches and, in, and even in secular organizations because it sounds nice and it sounds 
cute to, to kind of understand everyone to be a child of God. And, and um, just so you know, that's, everyone is not a child of God. And that's just not me, me talking, that's John talking. So it is only if you believe in the name of Christ can you be named by God as his child. There is no other avenue in which that is true. And because those who believe are children of God, certain things are true about them. Look at verse 2 again. John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but, what, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So John says to his readers, We are God's children, and we know this to be true. This is confirmed for us. The Spirit has guaranteed that. But there are some things we don't, don't know yet because they haven't been revealed to us yet. So I think this is important for us, for some of us to hear, as I know some of us like to speculate on things that are not clear in the Scriptures, which is fine if you want to do that, but just don't spend a lot of time doing that all the time. Look at the things that, that are very clear in Scripture first, and then you can kind of speculate later for fun. Because those things are not revealed to us for a reason. And John and his readers had the same dynamic. There's nothing new under the sun. They were asking some of the same questions that we ask today about the end times and, 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 and weird things that you read in the Old Testament. They were asking all of these things as well. But there's a great verse that I quote often to people, um, especially if I don't know the answer to something, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, that says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. John understands this and so emphasizes what we do know to be true and what is most important for us to know rather than speculating on what we don't know yet, which is what the false teachers were trying to do. John is combating this. And so what we do know to be true, what we do know as fact, is that when Christ returns at the second advent, we shall be like him. And John says, we know this. This is a fact. And this is a beautiful reality. Why will we, why will we be like him? Well, because we shall see him as he is. And so this seeing that John references here is not, is not a physical seeing as he was in the days of his earthly ministry where people could actually see him and interact with him and, and talk to him and even, and even touch him. That's not what he's talking about here. Nor is it seeing him with eyes of faith, which is what we do now. We see Christ with eyes of faith. That's not what he's talking about either. The seeing... This seeing is altogether different because it's seeing Jesus as he now is in his heavenly glory. It's seeing Jesus in his glorified state. And the sight of him in his heavenly glory is what makes us pure like him. In Isaiah chapter 6 in the Old Testament, uh, he records for us um, Isaiah's vision upon seeing Jesus' glory in this way. All the way back in Isaiah chapter 6 in the Old Testament. And it says this. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am an un- a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So this interaction that Isaiah has, just through a vision, he understands as soon as he sees the king, as soon as he sees the Lord of hosts, who is Jesus? Isaiah, the first thing he recognizes is he is unclean. He is stained with sin. He is stained with immorality. He knows he is not worthy to stand before the king in that state. So this is not necessarily theological. It is theological, but it's not necessarily theological, but ethical. So when Christ appears, John is saying, we who are his children will be made pure morally. And this is a hope that is grounded upon the promise of Christ. So, so looking back at the at the at the verse uh, from verses from last week, um, if you remember, let me see where where was it? Yeah, in verse twenty eight of chapter two. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, when we see him in the flesh again, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. This is how we have confidence. We have confidence because we know for a fact that we are already children of God, that we are already being made pure by the blood of Jesus on this earth. And so the idea of purity here when Jesus returns is the idea that you, upon seeing Christ, will be free from moral stain upon your life. So what this means is that you and I, as God's sons and daughters, upon Christ's second advent, will have an immediate and unmistakable unity between us and our Heavenly Father. Which means there will be nothing that hinders our relationship with Him. It will be perfect as Jesus's is perfect. So listen to the rest of what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And all of this proves the Father's love for us. Because this is the kind of love that He has given to us and the kind of love that transforms us. Because just as the Son glorified the Father while He was on earth, so we too are called to glorify the Father while we are on this earth. And now we learn in our second point about what the life of his children are to look like in verses 4 through 10. 
Let me read this for us again. John says, whoever makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So I have five kids. And because my kids are my kids, I do have certain expectations of them that I don't have of your kids. I don't walk around, whether, whether you think this or not, I don't walk around judging your parenting style or judging your kids' behavior because that's not my responsibility necessarily. Now, if I saw them trying to kill somebody or whatever, I would step in, don't worry. If they were in danger, I would step in, don't worry. But I have certain expectations that I, uh, on my kids that I don't have on yours. Now, admittedly, I am a sinner, so I can be an overbearing, mean, irrational dad in these expectations, and I think my kids would say amen to that. But by and large, I think my kids would admit that they have a pretty good life. Well, in the same way, in the same way that we expect our kids to behave and act, our Heavenly Father has expectations to how we are to behave and act and live as his sons and daughters. And we know that by the way in which John has written this section of his letter. So if you look back at, verses, uh, at chapter 2, verses 28 through 29, you'll notice that John ar- addresses his readers as little children again. And then he goes on to say that those who are righteous, which are the children of God, will practice righteousness. And then... In chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 that we just looked at, he kind of gets sidetracked by the topic being born of God or being born again in verse, uh, in verse 26 or 29. And then in these next three verses in chapter 3, he launches into this sort of parentheses that happens between chapter 2, verse 29 and chapter 3, verse 4. If you notice that, he kind of comes off topic a little bit. But John wants to to take this moment as he's thinking about what does it mean to be born again? He wants to take this moment to say, well, it means that we have a heavenly father, which is amazing, and we are also children of this heavenly father. And so he wants to establish that with his readers. And now he enters back into the main theme of chapter 2, verse 29, through chapter 3, verse 10, which, which is what it means to truly know God, and then living righteously in light of this knowledge. Because this is what John was, is, is bringing to light about the false teachers. The false teachers, who, who were also known as a, 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 um, a certain heresy uh, that still exists today, were known as Gnostics. So they thought what they knew was taking them to a higher level in their relationship with God. So this is what John is seeking to counter here in this particular chapter. 
They claim to know God, John says, but they don't model this knowledge in the way that they live. So John is answering the question, how do God's children live? How are God's children to respond to knowing God? And he does this by going back to this familiar tactic of comparing the two groups. It's what we saw last week when he was comparing uh, what the anointed looked like and what the antichrist looked like and, and what to look out for. And he still has these very two distinct groups in mind and now refers to them, if you noticed in verse 10, as the children of God and the children of the devil. And I love, I love John here because John doesn't mince words. He's not like beating around. He doesn't beat around the bush at all. I mean, he's already used the word antichrist uh, and now he's calling them the children of the devil. He calls them liars. You know, he just, he just runs the full gamut of who these people actually are. And let me just make a side note here that these two groups that I just mentioned that John is talking about, the children of God and the children of the devil, these are the only two groups of people that exist in the world. There is no like uh, moderate group. There's no third party that you can jump on board with because you don't agree with this or you agree with a little bit here and a little bit there. There is no middle ground when it comes to this. This is what Jesus means when he says, you're either, you're either hot or you're cold. You can't be lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Be one or the other. So you are either a child of God or you are a child of the devil. And John shows us the difference between the two starting in verse 4. He says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So by saying everyone who makes a practice of sinning, John makes a a vivid assertion uh, in naming what these false teachers who believe they are sinless are actually doing. So so to practice anything uh, means you are seeking to engage in in whatever it is that you're doing so that you can get better at it. So that's why we say doctors practice medicine or a lawyer is practicing law or athletes practice their sports. So John is using this, this word in a similar manner here, referring to the behavior of these false teachers. They're practicing sin. So essentially what John is saying is, in their practice of sin, they are seeking to get better at sinning. So when I read that, this reminded me of of Psalm 36. And King David describes this type of person. He says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. So he's thinking of new ways to sin. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. So before moving on, Let me pause here and say that there is a difference between committing a sin and 
continuing to sin, okay? There is a difference between committing a sin and continuing to sin because even the most faithful Christian among us sometimes commits sin. The difference, the difference is they do not cherish a particular sin or continually choose to commit that particular sin. So a believer who commits sin can confess that sin. They can repent of that sin and, they, and know that they find forgiveness from that sin from God. This is why we, have, um, we follow up the prayer of repentance with the assurance of the gospel from God's word after, after the confession of sin in our liturgy. That's why we do that, to remind us as Christians that we have forgiveness of our sins when we confess it. A person who continues to sin like these false teachers, is not sorry for what they're doing. And in turn, they do not confess, they do not repent, and they do not find forgiveness. So the way in which John in verse 4 and David in Psalm 36 describe this type of individual is based not so much on the evil acts he commits. I mean, that's very evident but it's more so on the interior state of his heart. So remember that the chief sin of the Antichrist that we looked at last week, the children of the devil, the chief, their chief sin is rejecting Christ, the Son of God. They don't believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And so this chief sin of not believing or uh, of, of rejecting Christ, the Son of God, births all sorts of other sins in the life of these false teachers. So in verse 5, John makes clear that it's, it's this, very, this very Christ whom they reject that has come to take away sins, and he is the only one who is sinless. And he goes on to say in verse 6 that if someone does go on sinning, as sinning in this way, they have no claim to Christ. You can't have a claim to Christ if you reject Christ. Because someone who truly abides in Christ, someone who has God's seed abiding in them, doesn't keep on sinning because Jesus was sinless. So the logic follows, if Christ our Savior was sinless, why would he allow a sinful lifestyle for his followers? It wouldn't make any sense. And Paul makes mention of this very thing in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And this is the test that John lays out in verse 6. If you are in Christ, then you will not go on sinning. That's the test. If you are in Christ, then you will not go on sinning. And this is what John is trying to expose here. The false teachers are anti-Christ. They are children of the devil because they choose to continue to make a practice of sin while at the same time saying that they know God. 
But John has been very clear throughout this letter that it's impossible to say that one knows God and to go on practicing sin. These two realities cannot exist together in a person. One will have greater influence than the other every single time. And this is why John says in verse 7 to his readers, let no one deceive you in this. Essentially, let no one deceive you into believing that these two things can exist together because it's a lie. And it's a lie from the devil. So verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, not of God. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. If you're born of God, you're not going to try to get better at sin. Verse 10, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So now that we know a bit more about the children of the devil, let's look at what what is true about God's children. Because throughout John's letter, uh, he wants to offer his readers the assurance of the gospel, the assurance that they are born again. Almost the entire letter, I would say, is this great big assurance to the church of who they are in in Christ. So in verse 7, the second part of verse 7, it says, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now that's assurance. John says, if you practice righteousness, you are righteous as Jesus is righteous. So what does it mean to be righteous? Well, the simple gospel answer is that you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ... And based on that belief, God declares you are righteous. Nothing that you have to do. All the Bible says is to repent and believe the gospel. And then God declares that you are righteous because of what Christ has done. So this is important because the false teachers claimed that they knew God, but the fact that they are continuing in their sin is proof that they don't. For if they truly knew God, they would know that he is righteous and all those born of God are also righteous. And then based on that declared righteousness, they will then practice righteousness. So what does that look like? What does it look like to practice righteousness? Well, I touched on this briefly last week with Paul's description of one who practices righteousness in Romans 12, 9 through 21. So hopefully you you were able to meditate on some of that this week. But we also have Jesus, the righteous one. And we have his own example in his, not just through his life, but also through his words in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. And you know these probably already as the Beatitudes. And this is what Jesus is saying a righteous person looks like. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all things, all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. 
for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here Jesus, in just this one section, but in, in all of his teaching and in his life, he sets, a, sets down a whole new way of living in a world that is broken and hopeless. He sets out what it looks like to live in the already not yet reality of the kingdom of God. And it's not the pursuit of sin, but the pursuit of righteousness. And not just the pursuit of righteousness on a Sunday for a couple of hours, but the pursuit of righteousness in all areas of your life. Because we are co-heirs with the righteous one. And John is saying the same thing here. The distinguishing mark of a Christian is not their knowledge. There's a lot of you in here that know a lot about the Bible. It is not, that is not your distinguishing mark, how much you know. Although there's nothing wrong with knowledge, continue to press into that. But you know, knowledge is not what saves you, but it's in how you respond to what you know about the person and work of Jesus Christ. So a a simple responsive question to ask yourself right now is are you practicing sin or are you practicing righteousness? Are you practicing sin or are you practicing righteousness? Are you trying to get better at evil or are you trying to get better at knowing Jesus, pursuing the righteous one? In verse 10, John says, by this it is evident. So here's the evidence. Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? John is saying that by your practice, by how you live your life, will declare to those who are watching whether you are one or the other. Now, if you were to discover right now that your earthly father is some sort of murderer and that you didn't know about or he had some other family in another part of the country or, or something awful like that, you may despair and think you will turn out the same way. And maybe you're discovering today that your father is the devil and you think there is no hope for me. That is, that is, a, that is a, a, a damning process, pro, prospect, that I am a child of the devil. But there is hope. And John kind of scatters it throughout these 10 verses. He tells us about this hope twice. First, he says in verse 5, he says, You know that he, Jesus, appeared. Why? In order to take away sins. That's why he appeared. That's why he came in the first advent. And then in verse 8, he says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he appeared. So John is telling the story that we celebrate during this season of Advent. He is telling the story of the incarnation. And the story of the incarnation is not just an excuse to give presents and to decorate our homes with lights. The story of the incarnation is the story that we've learned about in Genesis is the story of the snake crusher coming and defeating Satan, sin, and death on our behalf. 
The story of the incarnation is, as Sally Lloyd-Jones describes it, this is the second time I've read this. I read this last night in the Jesus Storybook Bible, and I think it's a beautiful picture of the story of the incarnation. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, has thrown everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. It's a story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. Amen. Let's pray.